This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado, the Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today, wherever you listen to podcasts. What's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the Geno Time Podcast here on the Blue Wire Podcast Network. We're brought to you by Bet Online. My name is Tom Westerholm, Celtics beat writer for Mass Live. I am joined by Nicole Yang of the Boston Globe. The Celtics, a couple hours ago, lost 106 to 101 to the Miami Heat in game two of the Eastern Conference Finals. Another boilerplate game for the Celtics where the third quarter was just an utter disaster. Miami outscored them 37 to 17. Celtics blew a 17-point lead. They also blew a 5-point lead that they built up late in the fourth quarter. Not like insanely late. There was certainly time for Miami to come back. This just kind of felt like a game that Miami completely outworked the Celtics. Got every loose ball. Really shut down the Celtics with their zone. I uh, I, I kind of think the Celtics are in a fair amount of trouble right now. That's my nice way of saying like, oh wow, the Celtics are in a lot of trouble right now. <laughs> what are some of your initial takeaways from tonight's game? Through the first quarter, I was sort of multitasking, and then I look up at my screen, and I had to do a double take because I saw Romeo Langford and Ennis Cantor on the screen, on the court, at the same time, in the first quarter. I don't understand the motivation to put Romeo Langford in the game. I really don't. It didn't matter. We couldn't even see the consequences of that decision because he lasted, like, 80 seconds before injuring his... Adductor. Yes. And then was ruled doubtful to return. Didn't come back. And his canter, I mean, actually handled his first half minutes pretty well. But I just don't think that that was necessary. Like, what did you make of those decisions? The canter thing was interesting because, like, you know, we, we talked about it in the Toronto series. It felt like when Brad put Cantor in game three, it sort of shifted the uh, balance of the, of the entire series because Toronto got, like, a l- little bit of a spark. First half, I thought Cantor was really pretty good. The Heat didn't attack him in pick and rolls. It was just in the second half when Bam Adebayo was just, like, rolling to the rim whenever he wanted. Some of that wasn't Cantor's fault either. Like, some of that was just the fact that, like, Jalen had to stay attached to Duncan Robinson. And there was a lot going on there. But first half, I thought that maybe Brad might have, like, put Cantor in at the exact right time for the exact right amount of time. But then the fact that in the in the third quarter, you know, he came back in and the Heat were like, oh, yeah, like, we messed up the first time. We didn't kill this guy with pick and rolls. And then, and then they did. That felt like a pretty major kind of flub to me on Brad's part. Yeah, I mean, this all just seems like a prelude to basically the collapse in the third and fourth quarters and then what happened after the game. From the first and second quarters, it looked like they seemed to be playing well. I didn't have any major takeaways from the first half other than that weird decision to put in Romeo and Ennis 
right off the bat, but was there anything that you wanted to note from like the first half? I don't really have anything else to say about that. So yeah, I mean, where do you want to start in the third quarter? Like it was bad. The Celtics have been really bad in the third quarters basically throughout the playoffs. I don't know what goes on during halftime because they play an egg every single time and they know it and like they're asked about it and they've acknowledged it and it still keeps happening. Tonight wasn't even passable. I mean, the Heat scored 37 points and the Celtics only scored 17 points. Like, that's just awful. And, I mean, I think for me, the turning point was like it was 61-71. Jay Crowder gets that four-point play. And then back-to-back bam dunks. One of them was an and one thanks to a really stupid foul by Ennis. Then it just sort of continues to snowball. I think the interesting thing was that, so you mentioned that the Celtics have been asked over and over about third quarters and have, you know, kind of said like, yeah, we got to be better. We don't know. We got to be better and all that. And then at the start of the third quarter, actually, they were pretty good. Like for the first like four minutes or so, like they were absolutely fine, like traded some buckets. You know, they led by 13 at halftime. You know, they built the lead back up to 15 a couple of times in the first three or four minutes. And then the thing that kind of got me about the third quarter was that at this point, you, you have to assume that the Heat are going to make a run at you. Like, their their spirit doesn't break. They're going to keep charging back at you. Guys were trying to... I can't even totally explain it. Like, there were just... I mean, there were so many turnovers, so many just kind of like... I mean, so many moments where you just kind of knew the Celtics weren't going to get a bucket on that possession. These really stagnant offensive possessions where there's a lot of dribbling, you know, not a lot of ball movement, and the ball movement that they get is like just kind of cursory. Obviously, the Heat and the Raptors are different teams, and the Raptors were also throwing out the box and one and other defensive looks that wasn't consistently the zone. Like Brad has now seen some sort of zone defense for like nine games now. And the struggles, it's not like they've been like, oh, they're gradually getting better. They're bad every game. Yeah. Very bad. And I don't know what the answer is or why they continue to be bad because I'm sure Brad is aware of this and his coaching staff is attempting to fix it. So I don't know if it's personnel, if it's execution, I don't know what it is, but it's kind of crazy, right? That like, it's the same problem. Like anytime they struggled against the Raptors, we were talking about the Raptors zone defense or their box and one. And the first two games of the Miami series, it's the same thing. So Jason Tatum was asked, what makes the zone defense so difficult to score against? And he said, I wish I knew. (laughs) Don't we all? Jalen, after the game, he thought it was execution. I believe in the players. I believe in the game plan. It's just that we haven't always like stuck to the game plan enough. It's funny because there are, there are like documented ways to beat a zone. It's not like this is like the, the first time anybody has ever seen a zone, but the Heat are really good at it. I think we've seen over and over that the Heat can't guard the Celtics man to man. Every time they try, the Celtics go on a little run. It's just like, it's seriously like a, like a oasis in the desert for the Celtics anytime the Heat go out of the zone. The zone, like every time, you know, a guy gets the ball there's you know somebody long and you know strong or you know athletic or whatever in front of him and watching Jay Crowder and Jimmy Butler there was there was there was one point where the two of them were attacking like the ball handler up at the top like every time like a guy got the ball they were almost like doubling them it was almost like a trapping zone and it was like oh my god like I don't know how you create anything against this the Heat are really really good at this and you know we knew that coming in 
Yeah, I mean, tonight the players just weren't trying. Yeah. They looked pretty lifeless out there, in my opinion, in the second half. I thought so, too. I mean, especially in the third quarter. So I guess I should say that the fourth quarter, yes, was inspiring in the sense that they started the fourth quarter at once. Well, let's not go crazy here. Or I should say it was encouraging because they were down by eight at one point, and they came back to get a five-point lead. Then they proceeded to give that right back. The stretch that I had as, I mean, I think this is pretty obvious given the amount of time left in the game, but the stretch that I had was, so when the score was tied 95-95 with three minutes remaining, Marcus Smart takes one of the worst shots. Just an absurd shot. A fadeaway, like 15-foot jumper contested with, I think, like maybe eight or nine seconds left on the shot clock. Just a really, really stupid decision. So after that, Goran Dragic brings the Heat to 100 to 95, gives them a five-point lead. And then Smart proceeds to take another three on the Celtics, like, next possession, which it was an okay look. It was still pretty early in the shot clock. But at that point, like, don't you want Jason Tatum? It's not like Marcus Smart was really hot. Like, don't you want Jason Tatum or Kemba Walker taking that shot? I mean, then the Celtics sort of collapse in that smart inbounds the ball to Jalen Brown, but Jimmy Butler pokes it away, and then it sort of falls apart from there. Nobody hustled back on that Jimmy Butler steal, and they had a chance to because it almost looked like he was going to go out of bounds. Like, it wasn't like a clear yeah, right. Spot. Like, they could have hustled back, and literally nobody did. Well, I mean, you know, it's the duality of man thing that Smart always seems to uh, embody, right? Like where it's like, yeah, like he's going to, you know, there's going to be nights where he's excellent on both ends. And I mean, you know, there's going to be nights where he's excellent on one end and uh, a little overconfident on the other. And uh, rewatching that fadeaway jumper that you mentioned, like it was a brutal shot. But like the Celtics weren't getting anything on that possession because everybody was just standing around the perimeter. Obviously, his shot wasn't great, and, like, yeah, maybe you would rather have, like, Kemba or Tatum or, you know, Jalen or whatever try to create something that's smart, but, like, whatever it was going to be was going to be somebody trying to create something one-on-one against the teeth of his own because nobody was doing anything. Nobody was cutting. Nobody was passing. Nobody was, like, getting the ball into the paint at all. It, it, It was, like, a completely stagnant possession. They were not running any sort of action. I guess if you're trying to get an isolation play, though, like, why is Marcus Smart doing it? Oh, yeah. No, it was it was an abysmal shot, but uh it was... It was surrounded by many other abysmal elements. Jalen had a, had a nice, like, you know, little close to the game where he had a couple of threes that kind of gave the Celtics a chance, and he had a really good look, actually, to try to tie the game. Celtics had no business being in a position to tie the game there. Like, they deserved to lose that game basically from, like, the 540 mark of the third quarter to the end of the game. They deserved to lose that game. But Jalen, you know, kind of gave them a chance. I noticed that Jalen, a couple of times, he was pretty open. He is open a decently fair amount against that zone, especially in the corners. You know, maybe a skip pass wouldn't get to him fast enough before somebody rotated over, and then maybe he's trapped in the corner. I don't know. He looked like he was getting a little frustrated to me. Like, I mean, there was one play where I think he clapped at Tatum. I think there was another play where, like, his shoulders sagged a little bit. And then um, last play of the first half, Tatum like attempted this really difficult three pointer and it was the last shot of the of the of the half obviously but Jalen again was like pretty open and he like the shot clanked off the rim and Jalen didn't just like immediately start walking to the locker room he kind of just stood there for a second like come on I think he's been open a decent amount he hasn't necessarily been getting the ball that much I wonder if that's starting to get to him a little bit it's not like Tatum and and Kemba are the only uh you know players who can score like like, that's the strength of the Celtics offense, right? If, if one guy's not really, like, scoring, then you have so many other options. But tonight it was sort of like, well, that's it. 
and I do get that there is like an extra complication with Jalen, and this is part of the reason why zones work so well against the Celtics, where his handle is much better, but you still wouldn't say that he's like primarily like a break somebody down off the dribble guy. And, and obviously, like it helps if you've got if you're going up against the zone to have that guy who, you know, who can get into the teeth. But I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a coach, but stick him at the free throw line. He's great at those free throw shots. Like, I just, I don't know. Like, I'm sure there is something because Brad, I don't think that Brad is infallible by any means, but Brad is much smarter than me. I'm sure there's something that I'm missing in terms of like why this zone is so difficult, but like, I don't know, man. Every high school in the country just like puts somebody at the free throw line and passes it to him and then he work, you work through there and that's how it works. Like I, I don't, I don't know why they don't do that a little bit more. I guess just running through the box score too, uh, Jason Tatum only attempted 12 shots, only attempted two threes, didn't even make it. Can't three. happen. They might lose 50 out of 50 games <laughs> with Jason Tatum and like, uh, shooting two three pointers and making none of them and making none of them with Jason Tatum not making a three pointer. Exactly. Yeah. Going back to Jalen, though, I feel like that was basically shades of last year of Jalen sort of getting passed over, Jalen being sort of like secretly frustrated at, at the distribution of the offense. And then obviously everything that happened in the locker room was not even shades of last year, just like, all right, here we go. Alone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So basically there are a bunch of reports coming out from reporters inside the bubble that were detailing how the Celtics locker room was handling the loss and it was not well there was a lot of yelling swearing Marcus Smart apparently yelled y'all back on that bullshit walked out of the locker room shirtless and went to the bathroom apparently Brad was trying to tell everybody to calm down apparently things were thrown the Celtics did take a while to come to speak to us. Usually Brad is very timely, took him a while, took the players a while. We did not hear from Marcus Smart. I mean, all the players obviously just wrote it off and were like, nothing happened. We're just talking about the game. I don't know what you guys are talking about. So I saw a lot of people basically be like, yeah, this is good. Light a fire under them. This is great. Now they're going to have like, you know, the motivation they need for game three. And, you know, Jalen acknowledged, look, it was like a lot of emotion. It was, you know, everybody was, we really wanted to win that game and we didn't. Like, you know, he talked about how much, you know, he, he loves smart and he loves smart for basically all the things that, that happens. So I, I definitely understand people who say like, oh, like, you know, this is a good thing. Like, maybe. I also kind of think like it might be a good thing, but it, it needs to be a good thing like now. Jason Tatum made a good point, I guess, and he said, like, we're down 0-2. Like, obviously, we're not going to be happy about that. But the Celtics have prided themselves on how connected they've been this entire year. It's been obvious in the bubble that they were one of the tightest teams. And I don't know why Marcus was yelling. Of course, we're going to be making a lot of assumptions here because we aren't there which kind of sucks. Like, I feel like tonight was the night where you're really like, damn, like, this is sort of a bummer as a reporter. But yeah. I would have to imagine that if Marcus was saying some, like, inspiring stuff or some, like, really, like, what's the right word? Like, some really, like, motivating stuff of, like, we need to, like, get our shit together and stuff like that, Brad wouldn't be telling him to, like, to quiet down. Like, Brad right, would be yeah. trying to simmer the situation down. And if things are getting thrown... Like, I just, I feel like that's like a heated situation. Yeah. I don't think that bodes well. I mean, these guys have been around each other, like, so much. Like, they've been locked in this bubble for two and a half months. Like, only a few guys have their families there. I mean, maybe emotions are running, like, a little bit high. Not in, like, a way that, like, everybody's going to calm down and feel better. Like, 
sometimes you just get mad and sometimes it doesn't improve. I don't know. Maybe it will, but I, I don't think that it's all just going to be like a glass half full rosy kind of thing necessarily. My mind definitely went there too. Like I feel like some players might just be at their breaking point mentally. Yeah. Like being in the bubble is a really tough mental task. Everyone has talked about it and every team that has left the bubble has been like, yeah, that sucked. Like that was so hard on your mental state to just be in the bubble and to just see these basketball players every day and to not have an outlet. Like they're just sort of sick of it and they've reached that point and everything just exploded because they were frustrated with what happened on the court too. You really, I mean, Kemba sounded confident. He insisted that it wasn't going to affect them, that it wasn't going to carry over into game three. The Celtics aren't practicing tomorrow. I'm sure they'll have some sort of team meeting, but like, I think that it is entirely too idealistic to come out of that and be like, no, this is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. Like this, this idea that they like cleared the air does not necessarily like square with like what we heard. It's certainly possible tonight was like a cathartic moment and the team will be able to move forward. No, and I, I think it's a good point that, that you made about trying to get everybody to calm down indicates that it, to me, that it's not an inspirational speech. That like, this isn't like, uh, guys, we gotta be better. <laughs> this is, uh, like, like, yeah, this is Marcus Smart, like, storming out without his shirt on, apparently to go use the restroom. It's kind of funny because of the setup. They don't have restrooms in the locker rooms. And sort of when the Bucks were going on strike, they had the same problem. Like, guys would just have to leave to go to the bathroom and then go back in. I'm still on strike. One sec. <laughs> I don't think this is a positive. I'm fascinated to see how it affects them. I'm sure they will spin it into that this was a positive, the Celtics, regardless of how they play. And not to go, not to go like a hundred thousand foot view here. This season has gone on for so long and so much has happened. And there are so many other stressors that like, I don't think you can just like look at this and be like, you know, they're going to get it together because, you know, that's something that often happens. Like sometimes guys clear the air. It's like, yeah, okay. But like, the circumstances here are so abnormal in every single way. And not only abnormal, but like it's so negative. Guys are not just thinking about basketball right now because how could that be the only thing you're thinking about with everything that's going on? There's so much negative stuff happening right now that like if things boiled over, it feels like it would just be kind of like a normal, natural reaction to everything that's going on. And this is a stressful time for everyone. And, you know, they have the additional stress of everything that's going on in the NBA right now. Like, I, I don't know. I, I think that there's a decent chance that all of that is kind of coalescing too. I think that the mental strength it takes for players to play a basketball game and to continue in the bubble at this point, it's been like two and a half months to continue just doing that is a really challenging task. Like it requires a lot of mental strength for them to come back from that. Like it's going to take a lot of mental strength. I mean, poor Gordon Hayward. <laughs> I know. I know. I, I was like, I, I was going to tweet it, but then like Celtics fans are just so on edge right now that I was like, ah, I'm just going to get yelled at. But I was going to tweet the, uh, the gif of um, Troy from community coming back into the room with the pizza, with everything on fire. Just be like Gordon Hayward showing up for game three. Just imagine joining that. Tone. If Gordon Hayward has to come back and play in game three, even without the pressure of being down 0-2, it's basically a must win. They just had this whole, all this drama. It already was going to be a difficult game for him because he's going to be adjusting to playoff level basketball after more than a month off. And playing in his first conference finals. He's so, never played in a conference finals before. 
there's already a lot of adjustments there. And so the man could not have asked for worse circumstances to make his return. I guess if you want to look at it, the glass half full, he couldn't be looking at a better opportunity to return because he could maybe, you know, save the team. I mean, if he comes back and they win this series as a result of him coming back, he will be uh, the toast of every uh, closed down bar in Boston. I guess we did get the game four schedule finally, and it is going to be a three-day break. So if he doesn't come back in game three, I feel like we're definitely going to see him in game four. I mean, if they lose game three, there might be no reason whatsoever to bring Hayward back. Why risk it like a, a, you know, devastating ankle injury when like, you know, the season is like supposed to start up in December, which we'll see if that happens. But what did you make of Brad's comments after the game that it wasn't like scheme related, that it was just like effort? And similarly, Eric Spolstra said the same thing. He was like, I don't think this had anything to do with scheme. I think this had everything to do with disposition. So is that just coaches using coach speak because they don't want to talk strategy? Or do you think that it's a combination of both? Or do you think that the Celtics really do need to come up with like a better scheme here and Brad needs to be a little bit more innovative? I think there's something to that. Even against like a really good zone, there's no reason that Jason Tatum should take zero three-pointers. Like there's no reason that Jalen Brown should have like eight points entering the fourth quarter or whatever. Like that indicates to me, a like certainly Miami's defense had something to do with that because they were, you know, trying to take away Tatum's three-pointers with their zone and they were putting themselves in a decent position to defend Jalen. But that does seem like failures on the Celtics end as well. I don't really know. It's a good question. I think, I mean, I think the zone is, is the thing that is the one factor here. And it's going to be fascinating because I think if the Celtics solve the zone, there's a decent chance they win the series. That really seems like the long and the short of it. They also have to figure it out in game three. Cause even if they figure it out in game four, like Miami will be able to win. Oh yeah, for sure. And I think too, like then it turns into, okay, if they do seem to figure it out for parts of game three, what does Eric Spolstra deploy as his counter and whether the Celtics can then counter that? Like, I still think the Celtics have more talent, um, at least more top end talent than Miami. Miami's the fact that they, that they can go like, you know, Duncan Robinson is obviously such like a useful player and he's probably like their, what their fourth best player. Like there's a lot of talent on that team. Tyler Hero has had a good Tyler Hero's good. Yeah. He's a good player. But the top end talent is better on the Celtics. Like they have three oh, guys sure. who could, four guys, if, if Gordo comes back, who could reasonably be all stars. I feel like Miami hasn't even played that well. They have not played like their best either. And their players said that after the game today. And that's the mindset that the Celtics have to avoid, right? Like they yeah. can't think about it that way. All they have to do is think about winning game three. Right. Because if they win game three, it's a completely different series. And if they lose game three, it's over. Okay. So Draymond Green tweeted out, Boston needs to go with Grant Williams at the five, put JB on hero, switch the pick and roll. That will take away the bam dive. Do you have thoughts? That's the elevator pitch of Grant Williams, right? That you then have a guy who can switch and who can guard bigs and who's, you know, mobile enough to go out to the perimeter and who's strong enough to contest in the paint. Like it's what you hope to get from Grant Williams. So I think Grant is ready to do some of that stuff. Like, I know one of the criticisms of Brad that's floated around a lot is that he likes to cling to his veterans more than, like, the young guys who might make mistakes but are, like, more talented. And I think that's one of the better criticisms of him. You have this guy, Grant Williams, who can do all this switching, who can, like, maybe what you try to do is empower him 
try to give him some confidence. Try to, like, and I, I think it's too late to be doing that now, obviously. But like, maybe like a more productive use of time would have been to try to empower Grant because you might need him during the playoffs. And because if you empower him and if you give him minutes and you develop him, like, there's a good chance that he's going to be a much better player than Ennis Cancer. So like, I mean, I think that's I think that is one of the failings of this season is that you know Rob and Grant did not play much and were not ready to go when the playoffs rolled around. Yeah, I mean, we buried the lead. Robert Williams, DMPCD. <laughs> Was that the lead from tonight? <laughs> um, no, that's true. Yes, Lord. His favorite saying. <laughs> all right, guys. Well, we will leave it there. Thank you all so much for listening. Uh, everybody go on Twitter and congratulate. We didn't even talk about this. Nicole on her new job as the New England Patriots beat writer. Uh, one of the New England Patriots beat writers at the Boston Globe. Huge congrats to Nicole, and we will talk to you all on uh, Sunday.